If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 26. James, chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. Now hear the words of the one true and living God. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to read you this quote from an Anglican bishop from the 19th century named J.C. Ryle. You ready? It goes like this. There's a common and worldly kind of Christianity in this day which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice. Which costs nothing and is worth nothing. That's the kind of faith many of these people had that James is, is talking to here. Your faith is cheap, he's telling them. You know, not all of them, but enough of them that he needed to tell them. You can't veil an impure life under a mere profession of faith. Someone with the kind of faith that saves it, it, it seeks to glorify God. And if he doesn't, he isn't saved. Period. I think a lot of times sermons can die the death of a thousand nuances. You know, if we, if we try to soften things up so much that they're more palatable to us or they're, they're easier for us to hear, we can totally miss what the author is trying to say. I do want to take a minute, though, and get one thing straight. I want to get out in front of some of the objections that people will raise to these verses and talk just for a second about what James is not saying. James is not saying that salvation is by works. We are saved by faith alone. And y'all might have heard me say before, uh, quote Jonathan Edwards, he says, the only thing that you contributed to your own salvation was the sin that made it necessary. But lots of people, 
Roman Catholics, for instance, will look at verse 24 and say, are you kidding me? It's right there. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we as Protestants can stumble on this because we know we, we believe the opposite, right? We believe that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We read Paul in Romans 3, he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So which is it? I mean, are, Aren't Paul and James at odds here on a very important issue? Is this one of those contradictions people claim is in the Bible? Well, I mean, only if, if, if you think Paul and James are forced to use the word justification in the exact same sense. Yesterday morning, I was, I was making pancakes for my sons. And it wasn't just the add water kind, you know? You had to put all the ingredients in, and I like to smash up some bananas, some banana pancakes, and I was trying to get the right consistency. So there's a word. You know, we can use the word consistency, we can mean somebody's constancy or effort in a particular area. They're, they're consistent in their behavior, that's consistency. That's not the kind of consistency I was looking for in that bowl of pancake batter though, right? So how do we know for sure Paul and James are using the word justification differently. Well, because it's clear when we look at the context of their writings, they're fighting off two very different enemies in the church. Paul is fighting off legalism in the church. James is fighting off antinomianism. Two fancy words, very important that you understand this though, so let me briefly explain, okay? Paul is dealing with people who think that in order to get right with God and stay right with God, they've got to earn it. James is dealing with a group of people that think if they just say they believe, it doesn't really matter how they live, their ticket's punched and they're going to heaven. Both of those are equally wrong. Paul, in his letters, in his context, in his audience, is talking about what justifies. And James here is talking about who is justified. Paul deals with how a sinner can be made right, how he can be justified in the eyes of a holy and righteous God in a legal sense. James is talking about how you can know who is justified. All right, and, and in other words, just to untangle this a little bit more for you in case I'm losing you, okay, your works don't deserve your justification, they declare it. Your works don't save you, they're just, they just prove that you are saved. The kind of justification James is talking about is not the justification of the person, but a justification or a proof of his profession of faith. With that out of the way, I won't have to keep making that delineation over and over again and make things clear as mud for you, okay? So with that said, here's the main idea of the sermon this morning. It's the main idea of James's passage here. If you remember getting saved and nothing's changed, nothing happened. Check yourself, James says. Faith alone justifies... But the faith that justifies is never alone. Works will and must follow. If you're genuinely walking with Christ, you will leave a trail. There will be evidence that that's the path that you're on. Saving faith is made evident through works. 
If you remember being saved and nothing's changed, nothing happened. That's what James is saying. There's, there, so he's saying there's a, there's a false kind of faith, and there's another genuine kind of faith, a saving faith. Three points for you this morning. Saving faith holds nothing back from God. Saving faith, point number two, holds nothing back from human need. And point number three, how you can know you have saving faith. So first, point number one, saving faith holds nothing back from God. Sometimes we think of faith as believing something with no certainty. That's not the kind of faith we have as Christians. Our hope is not in some idea or, or some way of life. Our hope is in a promise made by a holy God who cannot lie. That means even when we can't make out the details of our circumstances, we know he can. When, when we're drifting, when we're indecisive, when we're anxious, paranoid even, uh, uh, unsure, he is our anchor. He's the only thing we can be certain of. You know, so this isn't, this isn't blind faith. Our Savior rose again from the dead. Lots of people saw it. He defeated death. His sacrifice for our sin was acceptable in the Father's sight. He sits on the throne of the universe now. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. And he must rule and reign until every one of his enemies has made a footstool for his feet, 1 Corinthians 15. That's your king. Not some nebulous, far-off, sky-daddy taskmaster like many unbelievers may assume. Your king came and lived and bled and died for those he came to save. And he doesn't ask permission. He takes what belongs to him. And if he has taken you and you belong to him, can anyone tell? That's the question we're dealing with here. If he is your king... Is your allegiance to him evident? Is there anything you will hold back from God? Where do you draw the line with God? What areas of your life are you building privacy fences around to keep God out? What does he not have your permission to touch or to see? Saving faith holds nothing back from God. Abraham's the example James uses here. Abraham was a pagan from a long line of pagans who worshipped false gods. And while Abraham was still a pagan, worshipping false gods, God saved him. He took him out from the land of his ancestors. He plucked him out from his family and their influence. And he promised him something so much greater and, and so much longer lasting. A land and an inheritance. Descendants more numerous than the sands on every seashore and the, every star in the sky. And Abraham believed that promise. And it was, it was counted to him as righteousness, the Bible tells us. Abraham's righteousness was by faith in the promise of God. The question James raises is how do we know Abraham's faith was genuine? Here's how. When God crossed his line, Abraham didn't hold anything back. God said, Abraham, 
Take that son I gave you and sacrifice him to me. He got up the next morning, saddled up, rode out with Isaac to Mount Moriah. They get there, and the son carried the wood he was going to be sacrificed on up the hill. Let me repeat. The son carried the wood he was going to be sacrificed on up the hill. The father carried the knife and the fire. Ringing any bells? All of Scripture whispers Jesus' name. Abraham tells his two servants that went along with him, he says, wait behind, we'll be back. He says, we will go up, we will be back. Abraham didn't know how this was all going to work out, but what he did know was he believed in the promise of God, and he knew God was powerful enough to raise his son from the dead if he had to. That's saving faith. Certainty in the promises of God. Even when you perceive it will cost you something. And as it turns out, it didn't cost Abraham anything, did it? I mean, the thing he wanted more than anything, children, God makes him the father not of many children, but of many nations. Saving faith holds nothing back from God. And God holds nothing back from you. you know, maybe some of you had a, had, have a father that withheld from you. Attention. Affection. Maybe instruction. Encouragement. I don't know. Th things that you wanted. Your heavenly father withholds nothing from you. He is worthy of your complete trust and never breaks any of his promises. Does he have your complete trust and do you believe in his promises? <clears throat> Saying you believe is easy. Verse 19, James says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the, the demons believe and shudder. You know, I said a couple weeks ago when we were in James that, that this is the earliest book that we have in the New Testament. And it was written to some of the earliest converts to Christianity. And the earliest converts to Christianity were Jews. And you know what every good Jewish boy and girl learns at an early age and knows by heart? The Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James says, so what? The demons know that too. They can say it and believe it too. Demons are thoroughly orthodox in their understanding of God. They believe with all their hearts that God created the world and everything in it. They laugh at those who deny it. You have atheists that laugh at you for believing that, and the demons laugh at them for denying it. The demons believe with all their hearts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God in the flesh, who came and died for the sins of those he came to save and rose again from the dead, conquering death itself. They believe. James says, the demons have faith. Are they saved? 
Demons believe in God, but they don't have peace with God. They, they, they have knowledge of God, but they don't have comfort from God. They have all the facts, but none of the fruits. You remember what the demons said to Jesus when, when he came to cast them out? He says, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know stuff. The demons know the works of God better than many of us. If demons have that much faith and still will be punished in the lake of fire for eternity, how about those who say they believe but have never truly been inwardly converted by the Holy Spirit? Abraham's faith was different than the demon's faith. It was proven. It was justified by his works. Did God need proof? No, he's the one that saved Abraham before Abraham knew who he was. He didn't call Abraham to, uh, to sacrifice his son to see if he was legit. It wasn't about seeing, it wasn't about God seeing if Abraham had faith. It was about Abraham seeing that the object of his faith was trustworthy. Abraham was going to need that security if he was going to be obedient to follow God where he called him to go. And the people of God were going to need this event in history to look back on to know that the God of their father Abraham was a sure thing. That his words and his promises are true. Abraham believed the promise of God and demonstrated that he believed by his works. James says, faith by itself does not that if it does not have works is dead, verse 17. Faith apart from works is useless, verse 20. A person is justified by works and not by faith alone, verse 24. Apart from works, faith apart from works is dead, verse 26. You need faith like Abraham's, the kind that holds nothing back from God. Point number two, saving faith holds nothing back from human need. Verses 15 and 16, James says, What good is it to wish people well and not help them out when you're able? If someone has no clothes or food, what, what, what good does it do to say, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things that they need? Saving faith recognizes the image of God in other people. Why, why is murder wrong? Because it's mean? Because it hurts? No. Because murder is the destruction of the image of God in another human being. That's why it's wrong. Every person is made in the image of the one true and living God. And therefore has inherent value and dignity and beauty and worth. We honor God when we honor those made in his image and help them when they're in need. And James uses Rahab as his example here. Now you see how James is, is kind of picking up on this love for God, love for neighbor thing, I hope? You catching that? It, it, Jesus said that's the sum of the whole Old Testament law, is love for God, love for neighbor. And James is highlighting that here, because how can we know we truly believe in God and love him 
Jesus tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's how. Now notice he doesn't say, I will love you if you keep my commandments. He doesn't say that. That's not what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. They will matter to you. Evidence of saving faith looks like love for God and love for neighbor. So back to Rahab. Rahab was a pagan who worshipped false gods, like Abraham. And she was a prostitute. She, she was a disreputable woman. You can imagine she probably had a lot of lovers, but not a lot of friends. People wanted to be with her, but probably didn't want to be seen with her. What would God want with a person like that? Faith. The kind of faith that saves. And Rahab had it. Joshua sends out two spies to check out the land that God said he was giving into their hands. The, the king of Jericho catches wind of it. And he sends out soldiers to find the two spies and to kill them. And they get to Rahab's house where they've been. And Rahab says, ah, they went that way. And she's got them hidden in, the, in her attic. Right? And then she comes to the spies. And she says to them, I know that the Lord, and y'all, when you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the covenantal name of God that God uses to describe himself and that he shares with his people, it is Yahweh. She says, I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land and we're all in trouble. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard what Yahweh has done to his enemies and our hearts melted. Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had faith. And her faith caused her to act in accordance with it. Her, her mind was changed and her will was changed. And look, that's the point. If nothing changes, nothing happened. Rahab knew if these men belonged to the God she knew was very real and very powerful. She knew she had an obligation to protect them. She knew she had an obligation not to stand in God's way, in, in, in front of his plans, even if it meant it would cost her. She knew what was coming for her and her people, that they were being driven out of the land. And she begged to be spared, knowing she didn't deserve it. And she was spared. She was justified by her faith, and her faith was justified. She was proven faithful by her works. Saving faith holds nothing back from human need. Our horizontal relationships with other people are telling of our vertical relationship with God. That's the point James is trying to make. The, the final point, how you can know you have saving faith. Some people hear powerful and eloquent evangelistic messages and they're stirred up and they're excited into professing what they have not really experienced. They have joy and fervor at first. And then the freshness and the novelty wears off. 
Their heart grows cold. They begin to lose interest. And their seat in church is left empty. Nothing ever really changes. And so nothing ever really happened. So how can you know you have saving faith? I've said it already and hopefully I've made the case saving faith looks a lot like love for God and love for neighbor. Not just a profession of faith. If you walked an aisle or, or, or prayed a prayer, but nothing's changed since, nothing happened. Don't kid yourself. That faith can't save you. It is lip service, and God will not be mocked. True faith plants us in Christ. It is a present heavenly reality. It's not just an act of understanding, but a work of all the heart. It's a very change of your will and your nature. Conversion, when we use that word, is, is something that happened to you. It's not a decision that you made. We don't say, I converted. We say, I was converted. The Holy Spirit acted upon you and changed you forever. You were born again. And if nothing's changed, nothing happened. You know, God says, it's important to say this. God says, come as you are. You know, he doesn't say, this, this, this is a wreck. This, this needs some work, right? Go back and, and fix that and then we'll talk. He doesn't say that. He says, come as you are. He never says, stay as you are. He never leaves you where you are. He always grows you. Someone who is growing in grace has an increasing awareness of their own sin. You, your faith is getting stronger, and maybe not day to day, but certainly over the span of years. You want more of God, and so your life demonstrates that. And people can see, you're still you, but there's a change in you. You want more of God in your life. There's a longing in your heart to be with God, and your love for your fellow man grows. Your mind has been renewed, and the way you think about things has changed. The way you think about yourself has changed. And if it hasn't, nothing happened. Y'all listen, when I think about my responsibility to warn people about the wrath of God, it ties me up in knots. That's one thing I want to hold back from God. But I have to tell you, you cannot afford to play around with a holy and righteous God who is angry with sin. You cannot afford to go on assuming you have something you may not have. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He, tell, he, say, he says, on that day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many mighty works in your name? And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
you workers of lawlessness. Even the idea that that could be said of any of you terrifies me. I want you to know that you have more than just a profession of faith. I want you to know that you have the kind of faith that James is talking about here. I want you to know that you have the kind of faith that saves. You can know you have saving faith when you're quick to confess your own sin and you're more quick to forgive others when they sin against you. You can know you have saving faith because your sin grieves you. It's not all right with you. It's burdensome to you and heavy upon you. And you want it gone and so you pray for it to be gone. You know it is, it is an offense against a holy God that you claim to love. And you can know you can have saving faith because you desire to please God. You have a desire to know God. You have a hunger for his word. And if the Bible's of no real interest to you, it's because you have not heard your shepherd's voice. Jesus says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. Here's another way you can know you have saving faith. And it's one you might encounter if you're standing alone. Can you be mocked and laughed at and still obey God like Noah did? When everyone else thinks you're crazy, will you still be faithful? Jesus says, if anyone desires to follow me, he must take up his cross and die. You can know you have saving faith because you are already married to Christ and not just saving the date. You're not just, just dating and keeping your options open and knowing you can circle back to that and settle with that after you've had your fill of the world. Do not think you will have Christ in the next life if you don't want him in your life now. It does not work that way. Those are hard words to hear. I understand that. I, I, I do. And y'all listen, if it weren't literally a matter of life and death, I would have no reason to be so harsh. And someone might easily say this morning, this, you know, this is all law and no grace. Where's the grace? Nailed to a cross and crushed for your iniquities. That's where it is. Sin is not a light issue. It's not a character flaw. It is your death sentence. God takes your sin very seriously. He took it all the way to the grave for you. If Jesus gave his life for yours, you know you owe him yours. That's how you can know you have saving faith. And you know, maybe you're feeling convicted right now and you think you're not worthy of God's love and his forgiveness, and you're right, you're not. Your sin separates you from God and there's no amount of good works that you can do to earn your way back into his good favor. Your sin is worthy of death. But listen to me. God knows that. 
He knows there's nothing you can do. And he, with, we will, he will withhold nothing from you. He has made a way. Jesus came and lived and died in your stead. He died for sinners like you. He died the death that sinners like you deserve. And y'all, God expects perfect righteousness, no exceptions. And you don't have it. He came and lived the perfect and righteous life you aren't living and can't. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ and live. Don't try to negotiate either. You know, don't try to live with one foot in, one foot out. Don't ask for as little of Jesus in your heart as possible so you, you, can, you can still have as much of the world as you want. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Seek first the kingdom and all these other things will be added to you. Don't be afraid of what it will cost you either. And I don't just mean material things, okay? I'm talking about reputations. I'm talking about egos. Don't be afraid of what it will cost you. Don't be afraid or embarrassed to come to God and say, I'm a phony. I'm a, I'm a fraud. He knows. Come clean. The truth will set you free. Amanda and I watched a movie recently that we hadn't seen in a while. It's called Man on Fire. You may have seen it. Denzel Washington. There's this little girl, Denzel's her bodyguard, and she's terrified. She's just crippled with anticipation and fear of the starter pistol at swim meets. So Denzel's working with her, trying to get her faster off the blocks, right? To get her over the fear of hearing that shot, because she flinches. She knows it's coming, and, and it affects everything else. And so what he does is he trains her to ache for the sound of the shot. He says, you're a prisoner on this block, waiting to be set free. Don't fear the shot. The shot sets you free. That's you. If you're not a Christian and you know it, that's you on the block. If you have said you believe, but know you have, you've never really counted the cost, you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer, you had perfect attendance in Sunday school as a kid, but it's never made any difference in your life, that's you on the block. A prisoner and a slave to sin. And you're fearing the shot that will set you free. Because letting God deal with you hurts. It feels like dying. Because it is. Jesus says, come and die or don't come. It's dying to self and being raised to new life in Christ. And if that's you this morning, don't put it off another minute. Don't wait until you get home and no one's looking and you're by yourself. Bring all of that sin. Bring all of that shame. Bring all of those skeletons out of your closet. Lay them at the Father's feet and say, I'm guilty on all charges. And there's nothing I can do about it. I have nothing to say. I have no excuse for myself whatsoever. And I'm worthy of whatever it is you give me. Please have mercy on my soul. And he promises he will. He doesn't turn any away who will accept responsibility for their sin and turn to him in faith to forgive. He has the power to change you. And he will change you.
This is a shot in the dark. It's not something I do often, but if I don't take this a step further, I won't be able to sleep tonight. If you feel like you've got a lot to think about leaving here today, and you know that you need to seal the deal with God, the paperwork's been in front of you waiting for you to sign and you just keep putting it off, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Choose this day who you will serve. God offers you a free gift of salvation. Freedom from bondage of sin and life everlasting. If you want it and have realized this morning you don't have it, stand up. Jesus says, all those that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And he also says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If he is drawing you, stand up. Even if you're the only one standing. It will cost you something. Everyone's watching. What will they think? What will they say? They'll praise God. That's what they'll do. If you know you are saved, if you know you have this kind of faith that James is talking about, but you know you've been playing around the edges too much and trying to live with one foot in and one foot out, and you're ready to start taking your religion more seriously instead of apologizing for it, stand up. And don't be so hard-hearted. Repentance doesn't happen once. It happens daily. Our need for the gospel. Our need to be recognized as sinners in the sight of a holy and righteous God who offers us forgiveness through the blood of his son. It costs something. Go and eat your bread with gladness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. Knowing God has already approved of what you do because of what has been done for you on the cross by Jesus Christ. May your walk with Jesus leave a trail that people can see and follow for generations. Foster, would you please pray for us?